Well, not too long ago, we know we finished our series through the Gospel of John. And we know that uh, the Gospels all end with not Jesus dead in a tomb, but with Jesus resurrected and alive forever, forevermore. And it's this risen Jesus who then commissions his disciples to be his apostles, to be his representatives who go out, and they're, they're supposed to go out and speak and act with his authority. He sends them into the world. Earlier in the Gospels, that's where they end. But earlier in the Gospels, Jesus already sent them out to preach. So now he's sending them out again. So it's like, I sent them out, and then it's like, did Jesus forget he already sent them out? No. But he sends them out again. And why is that? Well, the first time, we read in Matthew 10, he says, to go out, there's to go out and preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I'm just going to define this once, well, maybe twice. What's the kingdom of heaven? What is it? It is the universal. It is the eternal rule and reign of God on earth. In and through his Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's the kingdom of God. It is the eternal, the universal rule and reign of the omnipotent, supreme God on this earth, in and through his Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's the kingdom Jesus sent his disciples to proclaim. He said they were to proclaim it was at hand, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely receive, freely give. It was at that time Jesus also told the disciples something we might find a little strange. He said, do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Now, here's this great kingdom, God's universal rule, but don't tell everyone about it. Do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So if the kingdom of heaven, this kingdom, is to be for all the world, universal, including Samaritans and Gentiles, why is Jesus telling his disciples, don't go tell the Samaritans and Gentiles? It is through the Jewish people, we know, that God brought his Messiah into the world. So they got a little privilege. They got to hear the news first. They got to have the news preached to them first because the Messiah came through them. But there's also this. The kingdom was not yet really here. It's not like Jesus was saying, well, the kingdom is completely here, but still don't tell anyone. Don't tell the Gentiles and Samaritans. No, he was saying the kingdom is at hand. Only tell the Jews right now. Go to the Jews. The kingdom is at hand. So Jesus had not yet suffered. He'd not yet died. He'd not yet entered his resurrection glory. All that was still to come. Jesus said to his disciples in John 12, and I If I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. So see, that's what has to happen before it goes to everyone. I have to be lifted up from the earth. It's when he's lifted up via his death on a cross that then the message of the kingdom goes forth to all men. So, Matthew tells us how after Jesus' resurrection, he appears to the eleven disciples, and this is what he says to them. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Could Jesus say that three days earlier? No. 
Now, as the Son of God, did he have all authority in heaven and on earth? Yes. But not as the incarnate Son of David, Son of Abraham. All authority had not yet been given to him in heaven and on earth. But now, now, that has changed. Now, Jesus says, all authority. What authority is this that he has been given? What, what authority is it? It's just he's in charge, he's the boss now all of a sudden? No, what this authority is, it's just the authority of the kingdom. We know what the kingdom is. The rule and reign of God universally, eternally, on this earth through his Messiah. That's the authority given now to Jesus. He's received the kingdom from his father. He's sat down on the throne of, his, of God at his father's right hand. And you say, well, wait a minute, has he yet? We haven't got to the 40 days. He hasn't ascended yet. Well, if you remember from John's gospel, Jesus didn't wait 40 days to ascend. As I put it this morning, uh, the, the, the ascension after 40 days, and this is going to sound irreverent, but I think it'll get my point across, and then I'm going to retract it. Okay? It was a show for the sake of the disciples. Right? He had already ascended. He had already ascended. There was nothing, it's not like he had to do this to get up there. He had already been there. So the resurrection ascension of Jesus was a single event. Jesus resurrected. He passed through the rock, the stone that covered the tomb entrance. He passed right through it. And where did he go? First thing. I don't know. This is a mystery. How he got there and what spiritual realities are happening. But suddenly he's in the presence of his father seated at his right hand and throne forevermore. Jesus is not resurrected and then waiting 40 more days for the, for the climax of it all. As one commentary says, we're not intended to suppose that the intervals between his resurrection appearances during the 40 days were passed by him in some intermediate earth-bound state, or I would add, in some undisclosed earthly location. Where was Jesus when he wasn't appearing to the disciples? The resurrection appearances in which Jesus accommodated himself to us in our temporal condition of life even going so far as to eat with them, were visitations from that eternal heavenly order to which his body of glory now belonged. In other words, they were visitations from the right hand of God. Never before in the history of the world had anyone appeared to men coming from the right hand of God seated on his throne. Now surely... That explains entirely the difference in your handout. The difference, and I love that word, the difference between Jesus' pre-resurrection and ascension commission to the disciples, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and his post-resurrection and ascension commission. So we read in Matthew 28 again, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So now I'm going to switch it up. Now everything is different. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. What a contrast between, don't go to the Samaritans, don't go to the Gentiles, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. All the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Trini- Trinity that we sang about in our first hymn this morning, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
Jesus sends the disciples into the world as his envoys, his representatives who speak and who act with his authority. And what authority is that? Don't forget what that authority is. Now to make disciples of all the nations. John tells us, that was Matthew. John ends his gospel with a similar tone. He tells us how even before this appearance in Galilee, Jesus came to his disciples and stood in their midst on the first day of the week. And he said to them, peace be with you. I'll always remember preaching that one. Peace be with you. The gospel in four words in English, right? Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also, who come to you now from the Father's right hand, send you. And this is to the apostles. He's sending them uniquely, certainly. And when Jesus has said this, he breathes on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. And so in your handout, once again, we see how the disciples are now representatives of the king. Of the king. Not just the king in some spiritual, nice, good-feeling sense uh, that we Christians get, but no, in reality, the king who is in reality seated at the right hand of God himself. Each one of the Gospels, oh, in your handout, to speak and to act in his name and by his authority. Now, each each one of the Gospels concludes, even Mark in its own way, if we do not accept the longer ending, each one of the Gospels concludes with this amazing sense of beginning. And uh, really it was hitting home for me this week. It's not, it's not the end, is it? The beginning of something miraculous and wonderful and irresistibly triumphant. I mean, you get to the end of the Gospels and you're like, well, I guess we're set, right? When we finished the Gospel of John, after having seen Jesus lifted up, and we saw him lifted up, brothers and sisters, I just hope you're recalling all the wonderful John. Um, I, I did feel a longing to turn the page and read the next chapter. In a sense, it's not just the next chapter. It is the final chapter. In a sense, it is the climactic chapter. It's why you read the Gospels, so you can, so you can see this climactic chap- chapter ushered in, in which we see the kingdom of our Lord coming in its fullness. The book of Acts introduces this next chapter. The book of Acts is all about this kingdom that is no longer at hand, but that has come. And is even now coming. Acts. Now remember all that. Coming back to that at the end. Acts is the second volume. We know of a two volume history written by Luke. So Luke. Opens his first volume. His gospel. With this preface. And so we're, we're going to try to get a picture of Luke the man. And why he's excited about the same things we were just excited about. Right? He's seeing what we're seeing. And we know that because we only see it because he saw it. Right? 
and, and wrote about it. And we have his books here to read and to preach on. Um, so Luke, what we're going to try to do is, we, we did a biographical sketch of Peter when we did Peter and of Paul when we did one of his epistles and we did one of John when we did John. Uh, we know a lot about John and Peter and Paul. Not so much about Luke, but enough that we'll get a little window into who this man is. So he, he opens his first volume, his gospel, with this preface. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. And what are you learning about Luke from this? Maybe you can think about that. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in orderly sequence, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty about the things you have been taught. So we learn from this preface that Luke was not an eyewitness. The apostles, we know, are eyewitnesses. Luke was therefore not an apostle. He was not an eyewitness of the things that he wrote about in his first volume, in his gospel. But he did have access to the eyewitnesses. He also had access to many written accounts. Some of them might be the other, certainly, gospels that we have. Also other written accounts that we don't have today. As well as the ability, he had the ability to travel extensively and to do his own careful research. And you know, it's not just anyone who goes out and does research and writes a history. You have to be a certain kind of person to do that, gifted, um, have the right, really, uh, the right situation in life to be able to do that. So Luke is mentioned by name only three times in the entire New Testament. It might come as a surprise to us because like, Luke seems like a big deal to us. And he is because he wrote two of the longest books in the, in, the, actually, yeah, in the New Testament. But he's only mentioned by name three times. And nowhere is he mentioned in Luke or Acts. Paul wrote his letter to the Colossians during his first imprisonment in Rome in AD 60. And I think we have a map up here. So there's Rome over there and... Colossae is below Laodicea there. So Paul's in prison. He's writing a letter to the Colossian church. And at the end of that letter, just so you get a feel for it, now we'll go look to see what he writes to those, those Christians there. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, so he's writing from prison. He has another fellow prisoner, a Christian. He sends you his greetings. And also Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, and also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. So they're the, only, they're the only Jews who are fellow workers with Paul. That means that the rest of these guys are not Jews. It means they're Gentiles. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a slave of Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings. And also Demas. So we learn from these verses, Luke is a Gentile. That's why his gospel is often thought of as the gospel to or for the Gentiles. That may be a little bit simplistic, but he's the Gentile. Now, if you're a Gentile, though, there were levels of Gentile. You were maybe a pagan Gentile, or you were a God-fearing Gentile. That means you probably attended synagogue regularly, and, uh, and you feared the God of Israel. 
Or you were a Gentile proselyte, means you had actually converted completely to Judaism. We don't know the case with Luke, but almost certainly before he heard the gospel, he was already a Jewish proselyte or a God-fearing Gentile. So he was very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. He knew the law. He knew the prophetic promises. Luke is the only Gentile author of any of the books of the Bible. So that's a bit of a distinction there. And how appropriate, given the fact that Luke is the one who writes the second volume, Acts. We also learn from this passage, Luke was a physician. That doesn't tell us much. He was a doctor. He could have worked. He could have been a physician for slaves, which means he would have been low. Or he could have been a physician for rich people. It certainly leaves the door open that he was a man of high social standing, and we assume he was. So one commentator says this, Luke traveled widely in the Mediterranean region. He engaged in historical research, consulting documents and records. He wrote books in educated, standard Koine Greek. The conditions that these activities require excluded all but members of the highest levels of society. Getting a picture for Luke. Wealth and social contacts, perhaps among them the most excellent Theophilus, were essential to the craft. Indeed, while Luke may not have been wealthy by some standards, likely he was either a retainer of a wealthy patron, some suggest Theophilus, or a person of independent means himself, who had the wherewithal to travel and the education, as well, to write the sort of account he did. His social status must have been relatively high, at least compared to that of many early Christians. Given some ancient tradition, it is possible that Luke was from the city of Antioch. So over there on the right-hand side, I circled it in black, up in the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. You see, you see Jerusalem way down at the bottom. So he would have been maybe, perhaps from Antioch, the capital of that Roman province of Syria. And in the capital, in Antioch, there had been plenty of schools, plenty of opportunities for Luke to have education, um, to, get, to pursue higher learning. Um, we learn from Colossians 4, then, that Luke was a Gentile. Luke was a physician. And finally, that Luke was with Paul as one of his companions during his first imprisonment in Rome in AD 60. Paul's been put in prison, it's AD 60. Paul writes his letter to Philemon at the same time he wrote his letter to Colossians. They were carried by the same person. And at the end of Philemon, this is what Paul said. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. So there were three Christians in prison together. Paul, Epaphras, and I'm not remembering the name of the other one right now. He greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. So who's Luke? Well, he wasn't just there with Paul in his imprisonment. At least for some time, he had been a fellow worker with Paul. Okay, Paul was in prison two or three years, under house arrest, not in a dungeon, languishing, but under house arrest, comparatively free, two to three years, and then he was released. After which, it appears almost certain, he went on a fourth missionary journey. He went on three before he was put in prison. Then he went on a fourth after he got out. After which, he was arrested again. Five years later, 
And it was almost certainly during this second imprisonment, well, it was during this second imprisonment in Rome. There he is, imprisoned again in Rome. This is a different time. And now he's again writing over to Asia Minor, but this time to Timothy in the city of Ephesus. And at the end of that second letter to Timothy, Paul writes these words. Be diligent to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present age, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Because of the connection between Luke and Paul uh, and other, other things, a lot of people look at the Gospel of Luke as the Pauline Gospel. A lot of people look at Mark because Mark was a close associate of Peter. They look at Mark as the Petrine Gospel or Peter's Gospel. So you have the Paul, Paul's Gospel and Peter's Gospel through Luke and through Mark. That's, that's just giving you a picture for the world, I suppose. Um, so did Luke accompany Paul on a fourth and last missionary journey between those two imprisonments? We know Luke is with him at the end. We know Luke was with him at the first imprisonment. What was Luke doing in the middle? Was he traveling with Paul? We don't know. But almost certainly, after many years of interviewing eyewitnesses, of traveling and finding sources, you didn't just go to the bookstore and buy the book, you probably had to go and search some of them out, or at least to the regions, geographical regions where there were copies, Gathering his sources, Luke composed the two volumes that we call Luke and Acts sometime between these two imprisonments of Paul in early to mid-60s A.D. When did Luke first meet Paul? When did he begin traveling with Paul? Well, again, we can't know that for certain either, but in Acts chapter 16, in the middle of of Paul's second missionary journey, A.D. 49 to 52, so 15 years or 17 years before Paul will be executed, Paul and Silas, possibly Timothy, they've arrived at the city of Troas. So you see the black line? They started in Antioch, they traveled, and they got to, to Troas. When they arrived there, Luke suddenly begins writing, in the first person, we, us. And if you're reading your Acts, maybe that, like, whoa, all of a sudden, we, us, that catches your attention. Or maybe it doesn't. Now it will, I hope. Um, so we read in Acts 16, 6 to 10, and I'll just leave the map there so you can kind of follow along, although it's not all named up there. They passed through the Phrygian, or Phrygian and Galatian region. So that's as they're, they're going along there in, before Asia or in Asia. They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to... I've got to look in the Greek how these are said, so I'm just going to throw it out so you don't feel, have to feel bad about guessing how to say these either. I'll say Mysia. They were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. Notice all the theys, thems, they, 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 they. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia. And you can see Macedonia up there in the yellow on the end, the left. To help us. And when he had seen the vision, 
And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately, and for the first time in Acts, after 16 chapters, after they and them, without fail, suddenly, it's we. We sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to proclaim the gospel to them. The we and the us was not an accident, because it continues faithfully for the next part of this passage. Luke accompanied Paul from Troas. You can follow the map. From Troas, they sailed across to Macedonia to Philippi, where they met the Philippian jailer and Lydia. We'll come to that in Acts 16. And yet, when Paul and Silas, after they got out of jail there, Luke was left alone, probably because he's a Gentile and was less involved, perhaps. But after Paul and Silas got out of jail in Philippi, they left for Thessalonica. Apparently, Luke didn't follow them. It seems that he stayed in Philippi or went up to some other place. At what point Luke rejoined Paul, we don't know, but the next time Luke uses this first person, we, us, is when Paul and his companions are sailing away again from Philippi. So all of a sudden, we're back in Philippi, and they're leaving Philippi. Last time, Luke stayed, or didn't go with him, apparently. Now it's a third missionary journey, uh, which followed right after his first one. And so we, we see, here he is, there's Philippi, and we're going to be going the return route, okay? Paul was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. A lot of people traveling with Paul. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. So they're leaving Philippi, going to Troas, and this time Luke's going with him. And we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days. And there we stayed seven days in Troas there. And then you can follow the black line. Luke accompanied Paul from Troas all the way back to Tyre, that top circle there across the Mediterranean, to Tyre and then down to Caesarea and then from Caesarea to Jerusalem where Paul was arrested and imprisoned. Luke was with him the whole time. We don't know what Luke did then while Paul was in prison. Did he go visit him? Did he kind of work with him from outside of prison? We don't know. We do know from his first person, we, us, in Acts 27, that, he, that Luke was one of those who accompanied Paul on the long Mediterranean sea voyage when he's being transferred to Rome to make his appeal to the emperor. We know that because he says in Acts 27, verses 1 to 2, Now when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And getting in aboard an Andromitian ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we set sail. So you can see Paul and Luke together and perhaps with others on the ship and they're traveling and they get their shipwreck and they're, they're shipwrecked on Malta over there and they make it up to Rome where the book of Acts will end. Luke followed him all the way to Rome. We know that Luke was there with him during his whole first imprisonment 
and that he continued as a faithful companion and fellow worker with Paul until Paul's second imprisonment and execution in A.D. 66 or 67, most likely under Nero. Fifteen years after Luke first joined Paul. Perhaps that brings Luke to life a bit. We see his faithfulness as a fellow worker in the gospel, as a companion with Paul, and one that Paul valued highly, called the beloved physician. Who knows, maybe Luke had helped Paul in some of his ailments or sicknesses. This is the Luke who interviewed the eyewitnesses, who carefully investigated all the written accounts of the things that had happened during Jesus' earthly ministry. This is the Luke, the one we've just talked and learned about, who wrote it all out in orderly sequence so that Theophilus and so that we might know the certainty of the things that we've been taught. We said earlier that each of the Gospels concludes with this amazing sense that you're at the beginning. The beginning of something miraculous and wonderful and irresistibly triumphant. How good is that? Luke concludes his own Gospel, the first of his two volumes, with these words. And he concludes his Gospel differently because he's the only one going to write a second volume. Then Jesus opened the disciples' minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. If we know Acts, we hear, we hear echoes of it already. You are witnesses of these things, says Jesus, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out toward Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And it happened that while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Now, always before, he's just A lot of times, he's just disappeared. Did Jesus need to be carried up into heaven to get there? No. It's a show for the sake of the disciples. A sacred one. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Luke. He's the only one of all the gospel writers who includes this final promise of the Holy Spirit. I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. He's the only one of all the gospel writers who gives this final instruction, stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. The point I'm trying to draw here is that this conclusion of Luke is as much or more even than all the other gospels, inexorably forward-looking. alerting us to the fact that this end of his first volume is, in fact, the beginning. It's the beginning. Luke is also the only one in the Gospel writers, the only one 
who recounts for us the final visible ascension of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and John didn't feel any need to recount the visible ascension. The ascension was already assumed in his resurrection. But Luke, because of his unique two-volume history, he tells us about the 40-day one. What does it mean? On the one hand, why 40 days and carried up visibly, taken up into the cloud? On the one hand, Jesus will no longer be appearing physically to the disciples on earth. No more appearances. He's not going to come to them anymore like he has been for 40 days. That's, that's over. So this visible ascension marks an end. An end of something. But that same ascension is also meant to mark the beginning of something. The kingdom that was previously at hand has now come. And it is even now coming. So we don't just say the kingdom has come and that it will come. We say the kingdom has come. It is coming. And it will come. Sometimes I think we miss the middle. It is coming today. Now. So Luke begins his second volume with these words. The first account, O Theophilus, I composed, and probably Luke composed these one right after the other together, very closely together. So Paul finishes the one and takes up his pen to start composing his second volume. I composed about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. So do you see what Luke is doing? He is saying that even those 40 days after his resurrection, up until his death and even to the very end, that was all the beginning That was all the beginning. Luke was the beginning. Now I'm going to write the rest, as it were. If the first account was all about all that Jesus began to do and teach till the day he was taken up to heaven, then this second account will be all about what Jesus continues to do. What Jesus continues to teach after he is taken up to heaven. So as one, we need, we desperately need to have this picture that Jesus has just gone up and he's just kind of idly sitting there until the day when the Father says, okay, let's, let's do something again, right? Now, Acts is about what he's doing now. So as one commentator says, Luke's first two verses are therefore extremely significant. It's no exaggeration to say they set Christianity apart from all other religions because these other religions they all regard their founder as having completed his ministry during his lifetime. Usually that's what we're stuck with. But Luke says, Jesus only began his. So the book of Acts tells the story of the continuing, in your handout, Acts of Jesus. Not while living on this earth in the flesh, as Luke's first volume did, Now Luke will tell us of the acts of Jesus while exalted in the heavens and alive forevermore in the spirit. 
So both volumes are telling us about the acts of Jesus. The first volume, Jesus' acts in the flesh when he was incarnate in, in, well, he's always incarnate, but when he was in his state of humiliation. Now the second volume will tell us about the acts of Jesus as he sits enthroned at the right hand of God with kingdom authority. But how is it possible that the acts of this glorified Jesus could still be historically observed and recorded by Luke. Luke is a man, he's a historian, he went to school, he's a Christian. Now he wants to study and read written sources and, and, and tell and write this second volume. How can he record heavenly acts? The first account, O Theophilus, I composed about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. And now, and now, right, he explains the second. After he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles. Who gives orders? The king who sits at God's right hand. Whom he had chosen. To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. And we remember that from John's gospel. Appearing to them over 40 days and speaking to them about the things concerning what? The kingdom kingdom of God and gathering them together he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the father which he said you heard of from me in John 14 15 and 16 for John baptized John the Baptist baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now so when they had come together they were asking him we'll look at some of this next week But they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power. What kind of power? Kingdom, kingdom power and authority. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Witnesses to who? To the King, Jesus both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth, the kingdom has come. It is coming. If you look at the title in your Bibles of the book of Acts, ever since the second century AD, Luke's second volume has been traditionally titled The Acts of the Apostles. Maybe a better, though way more cumbersome and awkward title would be this. And we've got it on the screen, the acts of God in Jesus Christ the King. By the power of the Holy Spirit, through his apostles. But now let's finish. Let's take what we just read in Acts and summarize. Who are these apostles? They're the apostles whom the King himself chose, to whom the King himself appeared, the one sitting at God's right hand, to whom the king himself spoke of all the things concerning the kingdom and who were commissioned by the king himself to speak and to act in his name as his witnesses and who were empowered by the king himself to fulfill this commission. Now, all that is unique to the apostles. How, how does this relate to us? Well, insofar as we have the same apostolic message, 
uh, we, we can have some of the same boldness and confidence, right? But there's something special going on here. The book of Acts, then, is a record of the acts of God, the acts of God in Jesus Christ, the King, by the power of the Holy Spirit through these apostles or their spirit-filled associates and representatives, such as Luke or Mark or Barnabas or Philip or any of the deacons, Stephen. It's the chronicle of a kingdom previously at hand, but now come and coming. Now there's one more ingredient, and Luke continues in verses 9 to 11. After Jesus had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Luke didn't include that explanation or that appearance of the angels at the end of his first volume. Why does he include it here? On the one hand, it explains the fact that Jesus will no longer be appearing physically to the disciples on earth. So this visible ascension, it tells the disciples, we've come to the end of something. From one perspective, we could say, we've come to the end of Luke's gospel. That's what the ascension means. It's the end of the gospel. It's the end of volume one. But there's something else the ascension means. It marks a beginning. The beginning of Acts. The same event. The same ascension concludes Luke's gospel and opens Luke's Acts. Because the same ascension, while it marks the end of one, it marks the beginning of the acts of Jesus enthroned at the God's, God's right hand. It marks the end of Jesus' acts on earth. It marks the beginning of his acts from the throne of heaven. The kingdom that was previously at hand then has now come and is even now coming. And here's the ingredient we add until the king himself returns. Do you see how we need to keep all three of those things in perfect, for us it's tension, or we could say harmony? If we forget that the kingdom has come that it is in fact an accomplished reality because Jesus is seated and ruling and reigning at the right hand of God, we'll, we'll, we'll be messed up. We'll be messed up in all sorts of ways. It has come. It is done. It is accomplished. Fact. If we forget that the kingdom is still to come, then we're going to get messed up in all sorts of other ways. But there's another thing that if we forget, we'll be in big trouble. If we forget that the kingdom is even now coming, And we'll see, you, maybe you can imagine why we get messed up if we forget that reality. We're going to be lazy bums. Where we're going to sit around and think, ah, it's come, good. It's coming, good. 
No, it's coming. I mean, it, it, will, it will come good. No, when we say, it's coming now. That's what it's doing. Why do you stand looking toward heaven? Waiting till it comes. This Jesus who has taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. The appearance of the angels then explains what the ascension of Jesus means. It sets the stage for the rest of the book of Acts. Here in the first verses of Acts, we learn that the theme of Jesus' teaching after his resurrection, what did Jesus come to preaching in, in the Gospels? When he first came on the scene, what was he preaching? He came preaching the kingdom of heaven in, in Matthew, the kingdom of God in Luke. Same thing. Once Jesus died and was resurrected, what did he preach? Same thing. The kingdom of heaven. Only now, it's here, not just at hand. Only now it's coming, not just at hand. So in Acts chapter 8, we'll see this. The Samaritans believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. What does Jesus Christ have to do with the kingdom? Well, everything. He's the king. And they were baptized, both men and women. Acts chapter 9, we read, Paul entered the synagogue at Ephesus and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about what? The kingdom of God. It wasn't like the gospels were over and they forgot about the kingdom because, well, I guess it didn't work out. Not yet. No, the kingdom is here now. It has come. The one Jesus proclaimed is here. In Acts chapter 20, Paul will say to the Ephesian elders, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Finally, even as Acts begins this morning with a theme of the kingdom of God, Jesus talking to his disciples before he leaves them about the kingdom, so the book of Acts concludes with the same theme. Acts 28. When the Jews in Rome had appointed a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging, where he was under house arrest. In greater numbers, from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God to the fact that it came, that it was even then coming, and that it would come one day. Trying to convince them about Jesus, the king, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So this is the kingdom promised in the Old Testament. That's the kingdom that we have today. He lived there in Rome two whole years at his own expense, welcomed all who came to him. What was he doing? as the book of Acts closes, proclaiming the kingdom of God, which is to say, proclaiming the acts of Jesus the King and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Sometimes we might read the book of Acts and think, wow, it kind of ends awkwardly. Paul's in prison. That's not a nice, happy note to end on. But in fact, where is Paul in prison? In Rome. He has complete freedom to be preaching the gospel in Rome, under the, ultimately the protection of his captors. Rome, the capital of the then known world. And so this ending to the book of Acts, which we begin today, reminds us that the kingdom that has already come in the enthronement of Jesus, that is even now coming in his present rule and reign, 
will one day fill all the world. Even as Jesus said at the beginning of Acts to the apostles whom he had chosen. But you will receive power, kingdom power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. Do we ask? Do we ask what is the practical significance of these things? The answer is so far-reaching as to make this question impossible to answer in a lifetime. We know by now that the answer to this question is not just simply something you put in a list. The answer to what this means for us is something that we live and prove experientially day to day. I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, do you believe in the kingdom? Do you believe it has come? Do you believe it will come? But let me ask especially today, do you believe it is even now coming? Do you believe that? Because if you believe that, working out the implications of that requires a lifetime. The implications are peace. Right? How could it not be? Put it together. Put it together in your mind, in your heart. Peace. Joy. Don't just, I know, oh, I don't, I don't have the list there for you. <laughs> so you can, whatever words you want to think up. Hope. Hope. Obedience. You believe in this kingdom? You believe it's coming? You believe the kingdom is Jesus reigning? Well, what does that mean for your obedience daily? Holiness. Courage. Boldness. Testimony. Witness. The list goes on. Live it out. What does the reality of the kingdom mean for us in our daily lives? It means that we ought to be praying, Thy kingdom come. And see, when we pray, Thy kingdom come, we're not just praying, Thy kingdom come when Jesus returns. We're praying, Thy kingdom come now, presently, currently, every day that we live. In light of the last few sermons we've been preaching, the coming of the kingdom means, among other things, the strength to live faithfully as husbands, as wives, as fathers and mothers, and as children. That's what it means. That's what it means. It means quite literally everything. Everything. So, what does it mean for us in our daily lives? May we spend the lifetime that God has given to us answering this question for our joy, for the good of each other and our neighbor, and the glory of Jesus Christ, who is our King. Dear Heavenly Father, glory to you, all glory to you, for what you have done. Words fail us 
But we thank you. We thank you that we are living in the midst of a reality that is irresistibly triumphant. Even as we'll see through Acts that that doesn't mean there's not suffering and persecution and opposition. Yet the kingdom marches onward because Jesus' throne at your right hand is unassailable. Because he has been enthroned already, the kingdom has come. Because he is currently ruling and reigning, the kingdom is coming. And because he will one day return, we know the kingdom will come. We thank you we're a part of this. Now help us to show and live out experientially in every way the reality that we believe it. I pray that we as a people, as a church, as Christians, that we have faith to believe. That you would encourage those who are downhearted in the, in the reality of this kingdom. That you would convict those of us who, who need to be convicted because of our sin with the reality of this kingdom. That you would do all in us that this reality can do. Thank you, Lord, for, for the Lord's Supper which proclaims to us not only the deeds and the acts of Jesus in the state of his humiliation, but ultimately his deeds and acts in the state of his exaltation. Help us to prepare our hearts now, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.